Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, the last talk I gave in sacrament meeting. It's been a number of years now since I gave a talk in sacrament meeting, and I kept a copy of that talk for posterity's sake. And it is that talk that I will be performing for you on tonight's episode. I was asked to speak on the subject of the atonement, and I was given 15 minutes to do so. By this point in my studies of the New Testament, I was only too aware of the fact that trying to say anything meaningful about the atonement in 15 minutes was a fool's errand. I think the person who gave me this assignment did not see it as a big problem because typically in the LDS church, we deal with the atonement only on a very shallow level. And indeed, it is possible to say pretty much everything that the LDS Church has to say about the atonement within 15 minutes, probably even within five. So I thought and I thought and I thought about how I could say something meaningful to my audience in 15 minutes, and this is what I came up with. But before I get to my last talk in sacrament meeting, I want to make a few announcements. First off, I had mentioned in yesterday's podcast that the $100 billion that the church has stashed away in the Enzyme Peak account had probably been hit hard by the downturn in the stock market, leaving it at roughly 60 to $70 billion. I was basing that estimate off of what my understanding is of the typical hit that investment accounts are taking. I am pleased to report, however, that my estimates were off the mark by a considerable amount. I have a friend who listens to the podcast who is very well versed not only in the art of investing money, but also in what kind of investments the LDS Church has in their Enzyme Peak account. I received this text last night at 9 o'clock p.m., you're being too kind about the 60 to 70 billion estimate. The church invests only in high quality, highly profitable, cash positive businesses. At this point, the EPA funds are down less than 10% year to date. So that's very, very good news for the LDS church. Instead of their $100 billion account being down to 60 to 70 billion, as I had estimated yesterday, it appears that they are down to no less than $90 billion. So the good news is that the church still has at least $90 billion in the EPA account. The bad news continues to remain that the members of the church who invested in that account by paying tithing are not going to receive one thin dime back from the church to help them in the middle of the economic downturn incident to the worldwide coronavirus pandemic. By the way, today is Tuesday, May 12, 2020. I am in the eighth week of putting up a new podcast every weekday here at Radio Free Mormon to help those of my listeners who are sheltering at home. And hopefully, as the days and weeks progress, and as we move back to what is hopefully going to be a state of normalcy, there will be fewer and fewer of my listeners who will be sheltering at home. The second announcement has to do with my podcast yesterday regarding the tithing refund letter ostensibly sent by the First Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and my claim that it was a fake letter, that there really was no such tithing refund contemplated by the LDS Church. A listener to this program decided to write to her local leaders and inquire regarding this letter and find out from the horse's mouth, so to speak, whether it was indeed fake or not. This is from a listener named Sheila Scott, who gave permission to use her name, and she posted the following on my Facebook page. She wrote to the Pacific Area offices of the LDS Church, which I am guessing has something to do with where she lives, regarding this tithing refund, and she wrote to them, Hi, would you please advise by news release 
if this is true. I am guessing that she attached a copy of the first presidency letter about the tithing refund to her email. She goes on, lots of members got excited by this letter put up on Facebook. Keith Chapman wrote her back in short order. And in his response, he says this, Sister Scott, I was hoping you could help me out. I spoke with President Richards and he passed on your contact details. So I'm getting the impression that perhaps she wrote initially to President Richards, who may or may not be her stake president, and the stake president then passed it on to Keith Chapman, who is the area security manager for the LDS Church in the Pacific area. Once again, Sister Scott, I was hoping you could help me out. I spoke with President Richards and he passed on your contact details. We have been made aware of a fraudulent letter that is circulating, by the way, underscore fraudulent letter. Yeah, it's fake. Fake, 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 fake. We have been made aware of a fraudulent letter that is circulating regarding tithing refunds. Could you please let me know if the letter was sent to you or how you came into the possession of it? Also, if there were any account details asking you to send any monies to. So apparently, the area security manager is concerned not only with how she got this letter and whether it was sent to her, one gets the idea he may be trying to trace it back to its original source, but whether there's a fraud afoot and the letter to which she refers is asking for any account details in order to bilk her out of some money. He apparently means bilking her out of money above and beyond tithing and fast offerings. He goes on, I appreciate the difficult times that we are facing and the strong messages of faith and hope that the First Presidency have issued. As you are aware, the Church provides for the welfare of its saints through fast offerings and the work of the Relief Society and the Elders Quorum. So, no, there's not going to be any tithing refunds. The Church provides for the welfare of the saints through the fast offerings as well as the labor of the Relief Society and the Elders Quorum. But it's good to know that he appreciates the strong messages of faith and hope that the First Presidency have issued, at least. Please let me know if you have any questions, and I look forward to hearing from you. Kind regards, Keith Chapman, Area Security Manager. And then it gives his address in Takapuna. Sheila responds saying, I saw it on Facebook. No bank details requested. Others in my friend group were discussing if it was real. I'm a go-to-the-source kind of girl, hence asking you to advise its veracity in a more public forum to allay any misunderstanding or expectations. Thanks. I don't know if Keith Chapman, the area security manager for the LDS Church, is going to address this in a more public forum, but his final response was, thank you so much for your reply and the information you provided. Kind regards, Keith. So he got the information that he wanted from Sister Scott, and that's the end of the matter as far as he's concerned, at least insofar as we can tell from this email exchange. Thank you, Sheila, for taking the bull by the horns and bearding the lion in his den. Pardon the mixed metaphors. What I can confirm from my audience from this is that number one, yes, the tithing refund letter is a fake, and number two, it does not appear that the LDS Church is interested in addressing this matter in a more public forum by press release. We will see if they change their minds on that. My next announcement has to do with Friday's podcast titled The Antipathetic Polygamist in which I detail some of the experiences that my friend Sue has gone through being a polygamous wife against her will in Mexico. In that podcast, I set forth a back and forth that Sue was having with her stake president in which Sue was attempting to see if her stake president could answer some of the questions and issues she had regarding the church, questions and issues that have led Sue to stop going to church. At the end of that email exchange, the stake president 
had left two questions for Sue. The first was, what brings the spirit and promised peace of the Savior, Jesus Christ, into your own life? And the second question was, what truths do you cling to for an anchor at this time? I then left it wide open to my listenership to give their answers to those questions. What would they say if they received those questions from their state president and how would they respond? I'm happy to say that many of my listeners took me up on that challenge and wrote very thoughtful replies at the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage. As I say, all of these answers were extremely thoughtful and I was very impressed by the answers given. Some of them were even extremely lengthy. And yes, I'm looking at you, Chris Tolworthy. But seriously, all the responses were extremely thoughtful and a lot of people put a lot of time into their responses. I wish I had time on the podcast to read all of these responses, but if I did so, it would actually take me probably an hour just to read the responses to those two questions that have been supplied by my listeners. So even though I can't do that on the program, I would suggest that you go, if you're interested, to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage, and while you're making a contribution there, you thought I wasn't going to mention it? And while you're making a contribution there, you can read these responses for yourself. I have read all of them, word for word. I just want my listeners to know that. And Sue also gets into the mix too, and she makes a number of responses to the different proposed answers that my listeners write. One of my listeners named Dave wrote a nice, long, thoughtful answer to those questions, and in that answer, he made reference to the parable of Lazarus and the rich man that I quoted in yesterday's podcast. Once again, the podcast about Sue was released on Friday, and in yesterday's podcast on Monday, I talked about the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Here's the paragraph from Dave's post on May 11th. What now brings the promised peace of the Savior into my life is remembering the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, who had everything, yet would not part with even a crumb to give to the poor beggar on his doorstep, whose only solace were the dogs that came and licked his sores. And so here we have an interesting coincidence where Dave mentions in connection to Friday's podcast the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and then on Monday I mention the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. In fact, I read it out loud directed to President Nelson because I thought it was so appropriate for him. In fact, the coincidence was so stark that Dave wrote another comment under yesterday's podcast in which he accuses me of plagiarism. Now, I don't think for a second that Dave is serious about his accusation. I think he is making it with tongue firmly planted in cheek. And yet I want to respond to it because I don't want to get on the wrong side of a hell's angel. Here's what he says there. RFM, did you just plagiarize for my post on the last podcast? Or do you also have a seer stone and a hat that provide revelatory ideas for your podcasts? I have often wondered how you manage the Herculean task of ideas for content of your podcasts day after day after day, but now I think the truth is out. You have your own seer stone and a hat, don't you? Come on, admit it. And maybe you have also started forging letters and put them out as genuinely from the First Presidency, and we know that you are well-versed in the art of magic. Let's see, is there anyone else we know who plagiarized other people's stuff, forged documents, practiced magic, and produced revelation after revelation from a seer stone? Just in case you missed my post on the last podcast, let me remind you of the section I believe you may have plagiarized. See, I'm being a fair Mormon. It may be that you just didn't read my post, and that's okay. I've been married for 55 years, so I'm used to being ignored. (laughs) Well, I will tell you. Now he quotes himself from Friday's podcast about the rich man, and Lazarus. So let me address this part directly to you, Dave, okay? Honestly, I did not plagiarize 
your comment. And actually, I did read your comment because I read all the comments that are posted at my Facebook page as well as at the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage. I am grateful for all my listeners who post comments on both fora. But I'm happy to announce that in this case, at least, I did not plagiarize you. I am, as Billy Joel would say, an innocent man. Because what actually happened here, and honestly, you can take my word on this. Trust me, there's no way I can verify it, but this is the way it really went down. Is that on Friday, I actually had already recorded not only the podcast about Sue and her stake president, but also the part about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. What happened on Friday was kind of unusual. In fact, it is unprecedented in my experience. Is that I sat down and I recorded a podcast which started off with the tithing refund letter, and that was only supposed to go for about 10 minutes or so. It was an opening announcement, but it kept going longer and longer and longer until I had a whole bunch of stuff recorded on that subject. I then picked up recording the main part of that podcast, which was about Sue and her state president, and that kept getting longer and longer and longer too, until finally at the end of recording, I had two hours of recorded material that I had to edit for Friday's podcast. So I decided that the most important part that I wanted to get out immediately was the second part, the part about Sue and her stake president. So I went to that, I edited it, I put in a new introduction so it would fit with the content, and then I put it up on Friday. I came in first thing yesterday morning on Monday, went back to the stuff that I had already recorded, Dave, already recorded on Friday, and then edited it and put it up. So I want you to know that although I'm not above plagiarizing you because that's a great idea that you had. I would like to think that if I were plagiarizing or borrowing your idea that I would give you credit for it. I do try and give credit for all ideas that I have that are not mine if I can remember where the heck I got them from in the first place. But in this case, it is actually simply an example of great minds thinking alike. So once again, the chronology is this. I recorded yesterday's podcast that included the parable of the rich man and Lazarus on Friday. I put it up yesterday, and so I did not actually plagiarize your comment. I just want to make that clear. Once again, I have no way of proving that this is true, but I hope by now I have a reputation for trying to tell the truth as accurately and completely as I possibly can, and that you will take my word for it. And please, please don't send any Hell's Angels by my house. And the fact that I have mentioned Hell's Angels not once but twice in relation to you, Dave, will I hope be evidence of the fact that I do read every word of your wonderful comments. And once again, I cannot read all the great comments that were made in response to the state president's letter out loud on this podcast. And I hope that I don't offend anybody else by focusing on one that I have selected to read. That's the danger I run into when I read only one of many, many good comments. But the comment I want to read is from a listener named Ryan who posted this on May 12th. This is his response to the stake president's questions. Dear stake president, he begins, thank you for your questions. What brings the spirit and promised peace of the Savior, Jesus Christ, into your own life? What truths do you cling to for an anchor at this time? Those are excellent questions, Ryan says. When considering the peace of the Savior, one should start with the Savior's words. Contrasting his peace with the peace of the world, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John 17, 27. As an example of peace that the world gives, one might consider Bernie Madoff. Madoff is currently serving a federal prison sentence for offenses related to a massive Ponzi scheme. No doubt, Madoff's investors felt peace as they read their falsified monthly statements and felt financially secure. But their peace was temporary. Their peace lasted only until Madoff's scheme was exposed for the fraud that it was. 
The world gives temporary peace. I think I can see where you're going with this, Ryan, and I like it. I like it. As an example of peace that Jesus gives, one might consider the LDS Church. The third article of faith states, We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. The LDS Church offers peace through certainty in its exclusive priesthood authority to provide the laws and ordinances that are essential to salvation. Madoff investors could have lived their entire lives in peace if they had read only Madoff-approved sources like their monthly statements. But news travels fast on the internet. When Madoff's Ponzi scheme was exposed, I expect that many felt their peace leave them, replaced by cognitive dissonance as they attempted to reconcile their belief that their investments were sound with what they learned. No doubt they felt pain and grief. I hope that after the stages of grief, some of Madoff's investors reached the acceptance stage and found peace there. Similar to the Madoff's investors, you knew this was coming, didn't you? Similar to the Madoff's investors, I could have lived my entire life with the peace that the LDS Church offers if I only read what the LDS Church gave me to read. But news travels fast on the internet. As one example, I learned that both LDS and non-LDS Egyptologists agree that Joseph's translation of Egyptian words on the book of Abraham facsimile 3 are wrong. In particular, Joseph said that figure 2 in facsimile 3 was King Pharaoh, whose name is given in the characters above his head. But all Egyptologists agree that those words refer to the female Egyptian goddess Isis by name. For a primer on the Egyptian goddess Isis, visit and then he provides a link to the article on Isis in the Encyclopedia Britannica. As another example, Ryan goes on, as another example, I learned that President Brigham Young taught the Adam God Doctrine only to have President Spencer W. Kimball reject the Adam God Doctrine. Thus, in just a couple of examples, I saw a church president, Joseph Smith, relying upon the Spirit to mistranslate an ancient language. And two other church presidents, Brigham Young and Spencer W. Kimball, relying upon the Spirit to reach opposite conclusions about the nature of God. What I saw from these two examples, among too many other examples to discuss here, is that the LDS Church's exclusive priesthood authority is not reliable. Moreover, I saw that revelation through the Spirit is not reliable. The upshot is that the peace that the LDS Church offers is worldly peace. It lasts only while information is withheld. But like the Madoff investors who have gone through the stages of grief to acceptance, I too have gone through the stages of grief. Through some denial, anger, bargaining, and depression, I have arrived at acceptance of the truth. The truth that the LDS Church is not what it claims to be, and never was what it claims to be. It was always of the world. And in that acceptance, Ryan concludes, and in that acceptance of that truth, I have found peace. I really like the analogy of the LDS Church and Bernie Madoff because I think it's an apt analogy and very, very well put by Ryan. Thank you for that, Ryan. Okay, on to the subject of tonight's podcast, which was, as I recall, the last talk I gave in sacrament meeting. Let me see if I can find that here. I titled this talk, The Mystery of the Atonement, and it looks like I gave it back in 2013 or so. Introduction. By the way, this talk was too long for me to give in the 15 minutes that were allotted to me in sacrament meeting. I had to edit it in order to make it fit, and I edited it on the fly. So here is the talk, 
in its entirety. I like to think of it as the director's cut. The Mystery of the Atonement, part one is titled Introduction. I was asked to speak for 10 to 15 minutes on the subject of the atonement. My first thought was, heck, I've spent 30 years trying to understand the atonement and still haven't succeeded. And besides, who can explain the atonement in 10 to 15 minutes anyway? Then I was told I might want to focus my comments on how a father teaches his children about the atonement. That was when I knew I could talk on that subject for even less than 10 minutes. I started racking my brain, trying to think of times I had talked to my children about the atonement. I was having a tough time coming up with anything. But as you should know by now, I have a horrible memory. So I thought maybe my children would remember some stellar examples of my teaching them about the atonement that I had forgotten. Wednesday evening, I was sitting down with my children to dinner. My 12-year-old daughter was there, as well as two older children who came home from college for Thanksgiving. So doing the math on this, this talk must have been given by me in sacrament meeting in early December or late November of 2008. My how time flies. Getting back to my talk. I told them I had a very important question to ask them, that I had been given the assignment to speak in sacrament meeting about how a father teaches his children about the atonement, and I wanted to know if they could remember instances of how I had taught them about this important gospel subject. After an uncomfortable pause, my 20-year-old daughter offered, Well, you sent us to church every week. She made it sound like I stood in the driveway in my bathrobe waving goodbye to them. I said, I am the worst father in the world. I felt like a total loser. But as I thought about it some more, something important came to me. The atonement is meant for total losers. Because left to our own devices, all of us come short of the glory of God. Apart from the atonement, no matter how hard we may try personally, we miss the mark of returning to our Heavenly Father. And you can't lose more totally than that. Part 2 is titled, Understanding the Atonement, Mission Impossible? As I said, I have spent 30 years trying to understand the atonement and still haven't succeeded. But let me share with you some thoughts about what I have learned regarding this supremely important subject. The atonement is so amazing that it beggars belief, so vast that it defies description. As Stephen Robinson, BYU religion professor, put it, the closer we come to the heart of the gospel manifest in the atonement of Jesus Christ, the fuzzier our thinking becomes. In order to correct this problem, Stephen Robinson wrote a book about the subject called Believing Christ. Believing Christ is a wonderful book, and it deals with the grace of God as manifest in the atonement. Stephen Robinson then wrote a second book, a sequel, dealing with the other side of the atonement, that being what we have to do to qualify for the atonement. Ironically, the second book ended up dismantling pretty much everything he said in the first book. And this is one of the problems with trying to understand the atonement on a purely intellectual level. It seems that it cannot be done. And it isn't for want of trying. The most brilliant people on earth have been trying for about 2,000 years and so far have managed only to fail spectacularly. Part 3. Things you wouldn't understand, things you couldn't understand, and things you shouldn't understand. This is not a recent phenomenon. For example, there are some aspects of the gospel that are not explained in the Book of Mormon. These can be divided into two categories. Mormon tells us that there are some things that Jesus taught the Nephites that he was forbidden to write. But importantly, there is a second category of things that Mormon tells us cannot be written. Not should not, not shall not, but cannot be written. There is something about these teachings that is ineffable. 
that defies the ability of language to express them. I think the atonement is one of these subjects. When we discuss the atonement, we enter the Holy of Holies. And in approaching so near to God, we encounter beauty and glory inexpressible. Part 4 is titled Parables and Models. This is not to say that we cannot intellectually understand and teach many important aspects of the atonement, that it was accomplished by Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate Son of the living God, that it was provided freely and out of love, that without the atonement we would all be doomed forever, that there is no salvation for any of us apart from the atonement, and that there is no other way to heaven than through the atonement provided by the Savior. These are all vital aspects of the atonement, but they fail to fully explain how the atonement works to bring about our salvation. Because mere language is insufficient to express the fullness of the atonement, inspired people have long attempted to use poetic forms to capture its meaning. Often parables and models are employed. Such parables include the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and even Boyd K. Packer's more recent parable of the Mediator. All of these parables are important in that they illustrate profound aspects of the atonement, but at some point, each of these parables breaks down in capturing the atonement in its totality. None of them is completely satisfactory. Indeed, the fact that multiple parables are employed suggests that none of them is completely satisfactory, i.e., if any one were satisfactory, there would not be a need for more than one. The same can be said of models of the atonement. The New Testament is full of different models of the atonement. There is the model of a gift that is freely and lovingly given that we must receive. There is the model of our being in debt and in debtor's prison and Jesus paying our ransom. There is the model of our being a slave and Jesus setting us free. There is the model of Jesus being a sacrificial substitute to mercifully appease the demands of justice. As with parables, all of these models illustrate important and profound aspects of the atonement. But at some point, each of these models breaks down. This is not just an ancient exercise, but something that continues to this day. I have already mentioned Boyd K. Packer's parable of the mediator. Some of you may know the works of Cleon Skousen. He is a master scriptorian. And because he too felt the various parables and models of the atonement were insufficient, he spent many, many years on his personal quest for the meaning of the atonement. He came up with a new theory, and it is set forth in his paper, A Personal Search for the Meaning of the Atonement, which is also a popular and famous talk on tape. Part 5. How can we come to understand the atonement? Well, with the most brilliant mind spending 2,000 years trying to explain the atonement and still not succeeding, is it just possible that the atonement is something that really cannot be expressed in words? But if it can't be expressed in words, does that mean it cannot be understood? I think the atonement can be understood. But in order to explain how, I have to talk about two types of learning. There are many subjects that we learn by reading books or hearing lectures or through personal study, subjects such as math and physics and chemistry. But there is another group of subjects that absolutely cannot be learned from books and lectures and study. Subjects such as dance and singing and martial arts. Let me take dancing as a case in point. I choose dance because, although you might find this hard to believe, I majored in dance in college. I do not mean ballroom dance, but performance dance, ballet, jazz, modern, tap. 
Now, you can go check books out of the library about ballet, and you can learn a lot about ballet from reading those books. But, and this is important, you can memorize every item in every book written about the ballet, and you still will not have learned how to dance. There is only one way to learn how to dance, and that is by dancing. There are some subjects that we learn with our minds, such as math. There are some subjects that we learn with our bodies, such as ballet. May I suggest that the atonement is a subject that we learn with our souls. And perhaps that, metaphorically speaking, our souls learn the atonement through dancing with God. Section 6 is titled, Experience is a Hard School, but Fools Will Learn in No Other. We can only learn the atonement experientially. By that, I mean it is something that we have to experience personally. Nobody else can experience it for us and then tell us what it is like. That doesn't work. We have to experience it for ourselves, just as the Nephites went forward one by one and felt the prints of the nails of the resurrected Savior and each individually experienced Him. The idea of learning through experience is not foreign to the gospel. In fact, we find it in the other primary cornerstone of the plan of salvation, the fall of Adam and Eve. Good and evil was not something that Adam and Eve could learn in a classroom. It was something they had to experience for themselves. And here I shotgun three scriptures in short order. If they never should have bitter, they could not know the sweet. DNC 29.39 As Alma put it, we have to plant the seed so we can know the seed is good. Alma 32.33 As the Lord said to Joseph Smith about his trials, Know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. D&C 122, verse 7. Perhaps the atonement is like a rainbow in that the more we pursue understanding it with our minds alone, the more it recedes from us. Perhaps the atonement is like the sun, which we cannot see by direct observation with our eyes alone, yet we can feel its warmth and experience its light. Perhaps the atonement is like a faint star on a dark night, which we see best by looking a little to the side. Perhaps the atonement is like a bumblebee, that the most brilliant scientific minds in the world cannot explain how it is able to fly. And yet, it flies. And here it may be fitting that the emblem of the state of Utah is the beehive. I like to think those are honeybees in that hive. Perhaps the atonement is what Nephi was talking about when he said, I do not know the meaning of all things, but I know that God loveth his children. 1 Nephi 11 and 17, slightly paraphrased. Perhaps the atonement is one of those things about which Paul said, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God revealeth them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things, of God, 1 Corinthians 2, 9-10. And as Adam and Eve had to partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge to learn by experience the good from the evil, perhaps we have to partake of that other tree, the tree of life, in order to experience for ourselves the atonement. I like this. The next section is titled, Becoming One with God. It is widely understood in the church that the word atonement literally means at one It is the act of becoming one with God. And so perhaps the atonement is understood by coming into contact with God, by becoming one with Him, by being, as Mormon puts it, clasped in the arms of Jesus, Mormon 5.11. As Nephi puts it, encircled about eternally in the arms of His love, 2 Nephi 1.15. Or as Nephi puts it in his psalm, 
O Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness? 2 Nephi 4.33 The next section is titled, Understanding the Atonement in Different Ways. I also think it is possible that each of us may experience the atonement in different ways from each other. You can see I'm beginning to dip my toe in the pool of heresy in this talk. No wonder it was my last talk that I gave in sacrament meeting. I also think it is possible that each of us may experience the atonement in different ways from each other, and also in different ways at different stages of our life. This is not to say that the atonement is a thing that changes, but rather we are all different from one another, and we ourselves change throughout our life. If the atonement occurs when we become one with God, then it may yield different results based upon differences that we bring to that divine combination. For example, I am somewhat of an amateur magician. Oh my gosh, I was talking about this even back in sacrament meeting. I am somewhat of an amateur magician. When I was 12, I used to do a magic trick that involved pouring water into several empty, clear glasses. Magically, the clear water changed color when it was poured into one glass. And not only that, but the water turned a different color in each glass. Of course, this calls to mind Jesus' miraculous changing of water into wine. I do not know how Jesus performed that miracle, but the explanation in my case was rather simple. Prior to performing the trick, I had placed a small tablet of food coloring in the bottom of each glass, a different color for each glass. So when I poured the water, it mixed with a different food color tablet in each glass, producing in one a beautiful green, in another a beautiful blue, and in another a beautiful red and so on. The water remained the same, as does the atonement. The water was the constant factor in the minor miracle I performed. It was the food color tablet that was different, and perhaps the food color represents the differences we bring to the equation of the atonement, all of them different, and yet all of them combining with the clear water of the atonement to produce a wonderful rainbow of color. And yes, if you think my repeated references to a rainbow may hide a subliminal message in this talk, you would not be far afield. Now it seems I am back to my rainbow analogy. But perhaps the atonement is not the rainbow that we try to catch, but the rainbow that we become. All of us experiencing the atonement in different ways and coming together to form a rainbow of indescribable beauty with Jesus in our midst. Perhaps this is the rainbow connection a little frog once sang about. Perhaps we are the gospel version of the Rainbow Coalition. Yeah, I actually said Rainbow Coalition in my sacrament meeting talk. And perhaps one of the atonement analogies Jesus used of himself is apropos here. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. There it is, folks, the last talk that I gave in sacrament meeting in its entirety. If you have any thoughts about this talk or about anything else that I've mentioned in tonight's podcast, or if it has prompted thoughts of your own, please feel free to post those over at the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage or at the Radio Free Mormon Facebook page. All are welcome. All are welcome. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.